Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast. Episode number 38, Sarah Appleby, When Self-Report Trumps Science. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang, from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. Our goal is to bring a virtual workshop to you every week throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Sarah Appleby. Sarah is assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at Mercer University. Her research focuses on the intersection of psychology and the law, including things like detecting deception, police interrogations and confessions, and legal decision-making. Sarah teaches Introduction to Psychology, Research Methods and Statistics, and forensic psychology. Our podcast today features Sarah's article, When Self-Report Trumps Science, Effects of Confessions, DNA, and Prosecutorial Theories on Perceptions of Guilt. The article was published in the journal Psychology, Public Policy, and the Law, and was co-authored with Saul Kasson. I think the best way to introduce Sarah's article is through its example. Imagine if the defendant confessed to a rape recanted, and then DNA evidence excluded him. Could a jury still convict him beyond a reasonable doubt? After all, that scenario matches many cases of DNA exoneration. Well, as Sarah will explain, this is not a thought experiment at all, but a real case. The jury convicted, and Sarah's article tries to get at why. Sarah, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Your paper begins with the rather remarkable case of Juan Rivera, who was convicted of a rape despite DNA evidence excluding him. To start off our discussion, can you tell us a little more about the Rivera case? The Rivera case is just one of many where the suspect confessed, DNA evidence was tested prior to trial, and the DNA did not match the confessor. Other examples are cases like the Central Park Five. And instead of dropping the case or looking for the match to the DNA, we see these cases continuing to go to trial. And Rivera had his conviction overturned two or three times, and he was tried and convicted three times despite the presence of exculpatory DNA. Just for some background, he was accused of raping and murdering an 11-year-old girl, and his DNA was nowhere to be found. So the prosecutor argued that this 11-year-old girl had had prior consensual sex with someone else, didn't identify who this other person might have been, and that Rivera had raped her, failed to ejaculate, and that's why there was no DNA there. He was exonerated a few years ago and compensated for his time, but he spent a significant amount of time in prison and, like I said, had three convictions despite the presence of exculpatory DNA. When I heard about the case and your paper about it, I frankly found it rather stunning or disturbing. And obviously it's possible that this prosecution story occurred, Mm -hmm. but it seems to me that the DNA exclusion, if anything, 
proves some kind of reasonable doubt. Now, you said that these cases do occur. How common are these? There's no way to really know. In 2010, the Center for Wrongful Convictions detailed 19 cases where people had been convicted despite the presence of exculpatory DNA. And I think 18 of the 19 involved false confessions. And there was one that was eyewitness. And since 2010, I've noticed, read about probably 10 more. But we find these out after the news that this person has been exonerated. There's usually a line in there saying, oh, and by the way, DNA tested before trial didn't match. So there's no way to know. We just know that these 25, 30 cases that we know of now are just the tip of the iceberg, probably. What are the psychological factors in a broad sense that lead to these kinds of convictions? So here it seems to me that there's probably some kind of confirmation bias going on mm-hmm. with the prosecutors. Definitely. And maybe some kind of narrative bias by the jury that the jury really attaches itself to narrative, that confessions are more vivid than the cold scientific evidence that's DNA. Yeah, we've known for a while that confessions are considered the most persuasive piece of non-scientific evidence. And even when people realize that the confession was coerced, they still tend to convict. And so, like you said, confirmation bias, once you hear that there's a confession, it colors the way that you interpret the rest of the evidence in the case. And in fact, a paper by my co-author Saul Kasson, another paper he did, showed that in the Innocence Project database, confession cases tend to have more forensic science errors than say, eyewitness cases, that confessions just kind of start this confirmation bias process going. And as we all know, once bias gets started, it's very hard to stop. That's one thing. The other, I would say, is we just have a tendency to think, I would never confess to a crime I didn't commit. So when you hear that someone confessed, but the DNA doesn't match, How do you reconcile that? And when the attorney, when a prosecutor offers you a story that helps you reconcile this contradictory information, suddenly we see conviction rates going up than when the story is not there. In a sense, the phenomenon here is actually even more remarkable than the flawed forensic science findings, because there you have confirmation bias in the sense that, well, we think this person did it, and we're going to interpret the evidence in a direction that suggests that they actually did it. Whereas here, you actually have contradictory evidence, and contradictory evidence, we'll get to your study in a minute, but contradictory evidence that is normally highly valued by the jury, and the prosecution and the jury still push along and decide to convict. Yeah. And this is kind of what got us to doing this research was, like I said, people trust confessions, but people also really trust DNA. It is the most trusted scientific evidence. 
the question is what happens when you have both? So that was really kind of why we wanted to do this study because you have the two most trusted forms of evidence competing with each other. Belief perseverance, not believing that you had ever confessed to a crime that you didn't commit, not understanding why people confess to crimes they didn't commit. It might make it so that you're looking for something, anything to kind of reconcile this contradiction. And if you hear a story or can come up with a story that all of a sudden makes these two pieces of information fit together, then you might kind of overlook the contradictions. So let me turn to those experimental studies that you talk about in the paper. Mm -hmm. How are the studies conducted? We did a series of three studies, and we give participants a summary of a case that where we can manipulate the type of evidence, eyewitness or confession, whether or not that evidence is inculpatory or exculpatory, manipulate whether or not the DNA matches, add in closing arguments. And so it's, it's a case summary, not a full trial, but we have them read about the case, read about the evidence, and then we ask them to render a verdict and tell us how confident they are in that verdict and how persuasive they found the different forms of evidence. And we've done it online, in person. We've varied kind of participants' methods, and we find a consistent result that there are times and cases where a confession will trump exculpatory DNA. Tell us a little bit more about that. So in your first study, I think you find that DNA is relied upon considerably. Mm -hmm. And then in your second study, you start messing with this by offering explanatory theories where the prosecution tries to weave some kind of story. So tell us a little bit more about the differences between those two studies. The third one is where you go out into a, an in-person sample. Tell us about those studies. Yeah, so in the first study, we just simply laid out the evidence. It was still a case summary, but it said we varied whether or not the non-scientific evidence came from the defendant or an eyewitness. Then we varied whether it incriminated the defendant or sort of exculpated the defendant. And then we varied whether or not the DNA matched the defendant or did not match the defendant. And we didn't include any sort of closing arguments or anything from prosecutors or defense attorneys that tried to help reconcile these contradictions. And what we found was overwhelmingly people sided with the DNA. If the DNA said the defendant did it, they voted guilty. If it said they didn't do it, they voted not guilty, even in cases where the defendant had confessed. And that was actually a little surprising. We expected to find some effect of confession. But then we realize and recognize that that's not how an actual trial works. Contradictory evidence comes up. The defense or the prosecution isn't just going to let it lie there without trying to either through cross-examination or closing arguments help the jury reconcile that evidence. And so that leads us to study two, which in study two, we added in just brief closing arguments for half of the participants. So all these participants read that the defendant confessed. We manipulated whether or not the DNA matched. 
touched the confessor. And then half of our participants got closing arguments. And so in the key condition, when the defendant had confessed, but the DNA didn't match, the prosecutor argued, oh, well, the victim must have had prior consensual sex earlier that day. That's why there's someone else's DNA and not the confessor's DNA and argued that the confessor failed to ejaculate, and that's why his DNA wasn't there. And what we found was when there was no argument, there was about a 10% conviction rate in this key condition. Once we added in the prosecutor's argument that this girl had had prior consensual sex, the conviction rate tripled. Now, it was only 33%, but that's still a significant increase, especially when you have exculpatory DNA. What's going on here? On the one hand, your results here are not entirely surprising. So if you see contradictory evidence... When one side, in this case the prosecution, offers an explanation to help its case, you would expect some movement toward the prosecution's position. Mm -hmm. But then, I have to say, the stories in these cases seem really very unlikely and rather convoluted. If we were to impose any version of Occam's razor, we would say, well, that, that's that can't possibly be the scenario that actually unfolded. What's going on here? That is a really good question. And the theory that we used prior consensual sex, that is the least crazy of the theories that we've heard. It's possible, but not probable. And like you said, it's not the most parsimonious explanation. We do know from past research just on basic jury decision making that the story model when jurors and attorneys can create a story that creates a framework that helps accept all of the evidence, that's preferable. And so I think what's going on here, and I'm not entirely sure, but I think what's going on here is part of it is that once you hear this story from the prosecutor, even if it's not very parsimonious and whatnot, it helps you accept all of the information instead of having to think critically about, gee, why would someone confess to a crime they didn't commit? How did this person know accurate details about the crime? Why would they have apologized for committing the crime in the confession? So part of it is it's also really difficult to understand why someone would confess to a crime they didn't commit. So it might actually be easier and simpler to just accept the prosecution's argument that, oh, yeah, she had sex with someone else earlier that day. I'm, of course, not a psychologist, but your study reminded me a bit about a study that I've read about before, which is the Langer study about the photocopy machine. So the Langer study is the rather famous study where researchers tried to cut in line to use a copy machine. And the researchers found that if you offer no reason, people basically allow you to cut in line about 70% of the time. If you offer a reason, you say that you're in a hurry or something like that, that percentage goes up to 90%. And if you offer a fake reason, and the way that the researchers did it was they said, can I cut in line because I have to make copies, which basically provides no informational content, it still goes up to 90%. Is this a reasonable connection for me to draw that this offering of an explanation 
whether useful, whether it possesses informational content or not, whether it makes sense or not, that this offering of the reason is still useful for the person advocating for a position. That's a perfect example. And we know from research on deception detection and research on the truth bias is that we tend to just critically accept what people tell us. It's a very effortful cognitive second step to step back and think, wait, that's not a reason to need to use the copy machine in front of me, especially if we're tired or overwhelmed. We tend to just accept what people tell us and not take that second critical step and go, wait a minute. So jurors have a lot coming at them at trial, trying to understand all the different types of evidence and bring it together. And it's possible that simply just the prosecutor offering an explanation is like, oh, okay, doesn't matter what the explanation is as long as it's there. If they don't take that kind of second step and think through it critically about how that doesn't make sense, that's not a good explanation, and that could be part of what's going on. What's remarkable to me is that in the photocopier study, you have a single interaction where someone's asking for a favor and it really makes no difference. Right. Whereas here, you have an entire trial, you have defense counsel arguing exactly the opposite position, mm -hmm. and it matters a lot, mm -hmm. and yet you still see the same phenomenon occur. Yeah, and again, I think it comes back to the difficulty in understanding why someone would confess to a crime they didn't commit, and the difficulty in understanding why not only someone would confess, but why is this confession so chock full of details and accurate details? Because we know that confessions aren't, when they're presented in court, it's not just a simple, I did it statement. They're long narrative statements that include details about what happened, how it happened, why it happened, motives, apologies. Sometimes it even includes the defendant reenacting the crime. And Brandon Garrett did a study of Innocence Project cases, and of the 38 cases he looked at, 36 of the false confessions contained accurate information that was not public. So I think part of it is the difficulty in understanding how, even if the confession is false, how does it have all of this detailed, accurate information? So it might just be easier to accept the prosecutor's story than actually try to wrap your brain around someone confessing to a crime they didn't commit. Let me ask you the difficult policy question now. What are we supposed to do with this information? Is there anything that the legal system can do to remedy things? The main reform for interrogations is videotaping from the start of the interrogation, not just the confession, but from the moment the suspect walks into the interrogation room, a video camera should be turned on. There is research out there that shows that when people, mock jurors, can see how the confession got to its final form. Did the details come from the suspect or did they come from the detective? They're actually more accurate in discriminating true and false confessions. They're not perfect, but they're more accurate. And so we think if you have the entire interrogation, prosecutors, judges, juries will be better able to kind of understand 
how we got from point A to point Z. And another policy reform, and I don't know if you could call it a policy reform, but is expert testimony, getting more experts in and qualified to explain to the jury why someone would confess to a crime they didn't commit. It's often something that needs to be explained. It's not something that jurors are going to kind of intuitively understand. So those would be the two main reforms as far as jurors go. Final question for you. Mm -hmm. What's next? So what work remains to be done in this area, either by you or others? And what are the other issues that are related that you'd like to explore? For me, this study highlighted how little information we have on how attorneys make decisions, especially in confessions cases, prosecutors and defense. We have no idea what they're thinking. We've researched why people confess. We've researched why jurors trust these confessions, but attorneys are this key intervening step that we have not studied at all as to, you know, how does a case like this even get to court? What kind of biases are going on in prosecutors' minds, in defense attorneys' minds? And so for me, the next step is, and I've actually started doing some research on this, is looking to see how the presence of a confession can bias attorneys' decisions as far as whether or not to go to trial and what strategies to pursue at trial. For me, the next step is to understand kind of what's going on in this black hole of attorney decision-making so that we can then test debiasing strategies and ways to help defense attorneys and prosecutors make more kind of objective, accurate decisions when evaluating this evidence. Well, Sarah, thanks for taking the time to be on Excited Utterance and for exploring this puzzle in the proof process. It was great having you on the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It was great. As Sarah's article describes, the guilty verdict in the Rivera case was ultimately overturned by an Illinois appellate court, which found the prosecution's theory highly improbable and discussed the nightmare of wrongful incarceration. Nevertheless, I think Sarah's article highlights just how powerful narratives can be in our system of legal proof. In some sense, the article's results suggest that basically, we as human decision makers can't help ourselves. We yearn for some kind of narrative to explain all of the evidence, or at least all of the evidence we expect to be reliable, such as confessions and DNA. So even if the narrative seems unlikely, it's better than the dissonance created by saying that the confession was false or the DNA was tainted. I'll be very interested to see future studies exploring whether some kind of false confession expert testimony might address the problems identified by Sarah's work. A final thought that we didn't have time to explore. Could it be possible that what Rivera and similar cases show is the jury's need for closure? In Rivera, the convoluted prosecutorial explanation gave the jury a path to justice for the child victim. And if the jury convicts on that basis, then we as a society supposedly know who did it. The defense, on the other hand, rarely can offer a true counter-narrative. 
it can only argue that the defendant didn't do it. And that implies that we as a society still don't know who did it. There's no closure for the jury and no justice for the victim. Perhaps that is why the prosecution's explanation, no matter what its quality, was so influential. But if that's true, then even with a high burden of proof, the prosecution operates with a much greater advantage than we may have previously considered. Viewed in that light, Sarah's future projects on how to debias attorneys take on even greater urgency. That does it for this week's episode of Excited Utterance. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producers are Alex Nunn and Margot Wilkinson-Smith, and the production editor is Carson Smith. Additional production assistance is provided by Aaron Parr Carranza, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next week when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof.